You ever feel like you're missing the point? Do you ever feel like somehow that there's a depth in our brothers and sisters overseas who are following Christ, who are giving their lives for him, and they have something that as American Christians we just don't have? I mean, that weeping and that party was not for the new iPod. It was for the Word of God. That they had an opportunity to introduce themselves and their people and their kids to the person who was revealed in this book, Jesus Christ. And I'm just humbled. My heart weeps every time I watch it. Because I just feel like I'm missing the point. Do you ever feel that way? I have a a picture in one of my, my study Bibles, one of my many Bibles at home. I have all the different translations and I have some in leather and I have some in bonded leather and some paperback and some hardcover. And I have my many, many Bibles, but in one of my treasured Bibles at home, I have a picture of of Chinese Christians who were gathered under the secrecy and cover of night in a dark room. And they're huddled around studying this Bible with a flashlight, knowing that any minute the door could burst open and their very lives could be at risk for them just getting together to celebrate the Word of God. And, and it, it makes me thankful that I live where I live, but it humbles my heart. It makes me realize that a lot of times I think I'm missing the point. There was a church that Jesus addressed in the Bible in Revelation chapter 2, and they were a church that missed the point. And I want you to, to turn there. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I know it's on the screen. We're going to look at it in just a minute. I want to take you back to my childhood. And um, first of all, just thank you for having me here tonight. It's a privilege to stand behind the sacred desk and be here with you guys and to, to share the word of God with you. And, um, but I grew up, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a Christian home. I went on a lot of youth retreats and had a lot of people invest in me. And i just, I just so thankful that my parents raised me in a godly home, that I had a good church, a good youth group. And, uh, and that's all I wanted to do with my whole life since I was 15 is to say, God, use me however you see fit. And um, it was while on, on a youth retreat, I, I can remember we, we would be in the Syracuse War Memorial with literally thousands of other kids from all around New York State. And uh, we'd, we'd get there and the music would be playing and there was like a buildup because every year at, at convention, we call it, it was like God met with us, you know, it was just a high expectation. It was actually at youth convention that God called me into the ministry and just always such a powerful time. And so we'd be gathered there kind of waiting for the worship to begin and the speaker. And they always brought in the great bands and the speakers at the time. And, um, and then they would start to chant. Maybe you, you would hear the chant. It would say, yes, 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 we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And, and one side of the auditorium would start chanting that to the other. Well, the other side, of course, they love Jesus more. So, so when you love Jesus more, you get louder. And so we would say, okay, well, we're not going to be up, uh, down by people who live upstate. Not us Long Islanders, right? And so we would yell louder because we love Jesus more. And we'd say, no, 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 yes, yes. You know, we just, the volume being raised, we love Jesus. How about you? And on and on it would go till I think that, the, you know, the band would just mercilessly come on stage and start and stop everything. The question that I want you to be haunted with tonight, as we get close to Halloween, I want to haunt you. Um, but the question, because this is a question I've been wrestling with for a long time. 
is not, do you love Jesus? If I went around here tonight and I asked you, do you love Jesus? I think to a person, you would all say, absolutely. I don't think there's one person who wouldn't say that they love Jesus. As a matter of fact, last night, I went on Facebook and I, I kind of went to Jesus's page. Did you know that Jesus has a Facebook page? And um, he has over 3 million fans. Did you know that? There are 3 million people who like Jesus. Here's the question. The question isn't, do you love him? The question that I want to get you tonight to think about is, do you love him most? Not do you love him, but do you love him most? And I've been wrestling with this question for the last four months in my own life. Do I love Jesus more than my son, Seth Jr.? Then my son, Jaden. Then my beautiful wife, Jeanette. Do, do I love him more than my parents and my siblings? Do I love him most? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then we're told later in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was confronted with a question meant to trick him. It's a teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do you love Jesus most? John Piper, as only John Piper can do. Any, any John Piper fans here? All right, just a couple of you. It takes me like three years to read through one of his books. You know, I, I, I admit that. But John Piper said something that, that just will make us think. I kind of, he kind of throws down this challenge in his book, uh, God is the Gospel. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and with all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Could you be satisfied with all those things if Christ was not there? You know, sometimes you ever, you ever get the feeling that sometimes, even during our worship services, that we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping the experience and the high we get off of Him sometimes. And, and sometimes we have these moments where we really meet with God. And I believe God shows up in worship. He, he dwells. He hangs out in the praises of His people. And I, and I believe that. And I, I really felt the Spirit of God here tonight. But sometimes... We're not seeking after God. We're seeking after a feeling or an emotion or, or what makes us feel good. I, I would suggest to you the most powerful form of worship is when we're right in the middle of a storm and we don't feel anything, but we know God's still faithful. And we can still declare with the same gusto, God, I'm not feeling it tonight, but that doesn't change your character and who you are. You are awesome. You are amazing. You are faithful. And sometimes we, we get things mixed up. 
It's not about God. It's about the experience or other things. But could we be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Let's go back to to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, as I told you earlier, this is a church that kind of missed the point. And Jesus was about to address them. And I trust that as we read this, we're going to find some things that are going to challenge us. But we're also going to find things that are going to help us. So let's look at this together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The first part of it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, now let's just stop here for a minute. Let's talk about Ephesus real quick. I want to talk to you about the city, and I want to talk to you about the church, okay? Church of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, first of all. In New Testament times, it was a booming metropolis. It was about 250,000, maybe to 500,000 people who lived in Ephesus, which also, interestingly, is modern-day Turkey. And we should be praying for, for Turkey today. They had a, I don't know if you heard, there was a, a massive earthquake, 7.2 on the Richter scale. They So far, over 85 people dead. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, you know, they said buildings were collapsing. What a, what a tra- As I was preparing for this, I saw this on the news. And we need to, to keep the people of Turkey in prayer. But Turkey is, is modern, uh, was Ephesus in Scripture. The city hosted athletic events in this big, huge city theater that was said to hold 25 to 30,000 people. So they loved sport. It was also the market of Asia. There were a lot of, of, of trading and commerce that went through this area. It was, a, it was a thriving metropolis. Ephesus was also characterized by pagan worship. They worshipped um, a god by the name of Diana, a goddess, I should say. And her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a very beautiful temple that was dedicated to her. It was also in this temple where they had prostitutes and criminals. And it was, a, it was just a, a horrible scene. Because Diana, she was the goddess of fertility. And so you could just imagine the ungodliness and the pagan uh, idolatry that went on in this temple. So it's a thriving metropolis, but it's filled with pagan worship. There was a philosopher, Heraclitus, who said this about Ephesus. That kind of, I think, sums it up for us. He said that no one could live in Ephesus and not weep, not weep over its immorality. And here we find the church of Ephesus, the church that Jesus is addressing. Now, let's just talk real quickly about the church. In the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses seven churches. The most prominent one is the church of Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the Ephesian church was the one that established the other six that Jesus was going to address in the next few chapters of Revelation. They had this rich spiritual heritage. We know that the Apostle Paul, he went there on his third missionary journey. And for three years, he poured himself into the Ephesian people and to establishing the church there. We also know that Timothy, who Paul trained in the ministry, was their elder, was their, was their pastor. So they had this great spiritual heritage. They also had uh, the Apostle John was called one of the elders of Ephesus. In many ways, they were the model church. You know, I think, a lot, you know, if you want to see how church is done today, you would go and, and go see Stanley or some of these other guys. I think you would have gone in those days, you would have gone to Ephesus because they had a rich spiritual heritage. So they were established. So they live in this 
awful dark place. It's a booming metropolis. And they're an established church with a great spiritual heritage. And Jesus addresses them. And he says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. You have not grown weary. They labor to the point of exhaustion. You know, in many churches, they say it's, what, 10% of the people who are doing the majority of the work. And I don't think that was the case in the Ephesus church. Jesus said, you guys work really hard. It seems like, you know, you, you, you get it. You're working hard. You're, you're, you're working to the point of exhaustion. They weren't lazy in their service for the Lord. They persevered, we're told, under some very hard circumstances. After all, look where they lived. They had to persevere. They had to keep going. They had high biblical standards. They were one of the first churches, I believe, that would have called out Harold Camping. All right? I mean, I, no question. You know, today we're afraid to name drop, right? It's not good etiquette in the pulpit. And I don't like to do that either. Unless it's, it's very clear from Scripture that we should. The job of a pastor is to help protect the sheep from, from getting false doctrine. And you guys are aware of that. And you have two good pastors here who do that for you. But they had high biblical standards. And they didn't tolerate false teaching. And they called it out. And it reminded me of what the late Walter Martin said. He said, controversy for the sake of truth is a divine command. And these people had no problem calling stuff out. And Jesus commended them for it. This is good. They cared deeply about the reputation of Christ. And frankly, if you were looking for the recipe of a healthy church, you would want to look at this Ephesian church. And they were commended. And as I go on in my message, don't forget that they were commended by the Lord for the work they were doing. And they were doing a good work. But then it's, it's as if things come to a screeching halt. You know, did you ever have somebody compliment you? And then you're like, all right, look, just get, get to it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, where's the knife? You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm a little skeptical sometimes when people are like, you know, that was good. And I'm like, okay, where's the butt coming? You know? And in this case, things come to a screeching halt. And Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You're doing all this really well, but I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You see, outwardly, they were doing all the right things. But somewhere, somehow, their, their walk with God became routine. It became mechanical. Somehow their work for the Lord got in the way of their walk with the Lord. Their walk got in the way, or their work got in the way of their walk. Recently, it was my wife, and she was sharing with me that, that God just showed her recently that it's so easy to do things for God. And to be busy for him than it is to stop each and every day and take time to be with him and to receive from him and to live in relationship with him. Can you relate to that? I, I don't know why that is. Even as a pastor, it's, it's easier for me to plan a trip, preach a sermon, than it is for me to, you know, put the brakes on, get my office, 
put on the do not disturb and just get along with God for a while? I don't know why that is. I, frankly, I'm more productive when I'm spending more time with the Lord, but that's perhaps another sermon. But they lost the why behind the what. They lost the why behind the what. And, and what I want to do tonight is I want to make this personal for you. How do you know if you left your first love? I mean, what are some of the signs? I, I wanted to kind of just give you some things to think about tonight. And, and uh, these are just things that, that God just brought to my mind. There may be many more. But I'm just going to give you a bunch uh, of them tonight. And, uh, and then I want to tell you the cure. Because in this very passage of Scripture, Jesus not only tells them what they were doing right, not only tells them where they were going off track, but then he tells them the cure. He's like, okay, well, here's where we're at. And here's what you need to do to get right back on track. And so that's where we're going tonight. But the first thing I want you to know, as far as how do you know if you've left your first love, is you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. And so we need to get along with God. I don't know how often you guys do uh, the Lord's Supper here. Uh, at Island Christian, we do it once a month. And, uh, and, and communion, I find, is a great time to search my heart before God. As a matter of fact, we're commanded in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11, we, we are to examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper. I would challenge you to go once a month and, and just have a media fast. Get on a silent retreat. Just get alone in a special place, you and God, and say, okay, God, how's it going? I, I recently was on a men's retreat, and um, we, we went out for like, I think it was like two hours. I don't remember the last time I had two hours worth of quiet time together. And the, and the speaker just sent us, he said, just get silent with the Lord. Just bring your Bible and find a spot. And God, man, he started to put things, his finger on things in my life that were really painful. And for me, it was a very painful experience because God started to show me things that weren't right in me. And I had to, I had to deal with that. But I'm thankful I had that time to sit down, to slow down, and to hear that from the Lord. And so I would challenge you that, that you need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the state of your heart before God. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts believers of sin. Then I would challenge you also to take inventory, and that probably plays into what I just said. But take inventory and compare yourself to the Word of God. You know, so many times we compare ourselves to each other. And, and I would just say this. I think that oftentimes comparison leads us to complacency. You know, we, we, we kind of like, I mean, if, if everybody around you is lukewarm in their faith and you start comparing yourself to them, where does that leave you? I believe that we're to, we're to take inventory and compare ourselves to what the Word of God says. And that's when God really shines His spotlight in our hearts and our lives. And so take inventory of your life. Um, this would involve reading and studying the Word of God. We are told that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. So get along with your Bible. Get along with God. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you. Take inventory. The third thing is the obedience factor. I want to talk to you a little bit about obedience. Do you know that your Christian life will stall at the point of your disobedience? I really believe that our Christian lives just totally stall at the point of our disobedience. It was Oswald Chambers who said, If you obey God in the first thing that he shows you, then instantly he opens up the next truth to you. He says, God will never reveal more truth about himself to you 
until you have obeyed what you already know. And that kind of confirms what Jesus said in John 14. He said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. And he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And get this, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. Our our Christian lives, when there is disobedience in our walk with God, our Christian lives stall. So I challenge you, is there, is there somebody that you need to forgive that you haven't forgiven yet? Is there, is there a conflict in a relationship that you know that God wants you to make right? Maybe a husband or a wife. We're told that, that if a husband and wife are not walking together and honoring the Lord, that that could be a, a point where their prayer is hindered. Are you honoring God? Is there money that you're withholding from the Lord? Is there an area of, of disobedience in your life? And, and I would challenge you that if there is, and if God is speaking to you about that, deal with it tonight. Deal with it tonight. Another area where where could be a sign that we've left our first love is in this area of margin. Margin is the amount of time that is available to us beyond what is necessary. Meaning, if it takes me 15 minutes to get to, to church, which it does typically for me, and uh, it would be wise for me to leave about a half hour because then I have about 15 minutes of margin. See, I don't do that. I have a 15-minute ride to church, so I leave myself 12 minutes to get there. And, 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 I, and you know, how many, how many do that? All right, am I the only one? Okay. And, and, and it's, I do this too. In the shower, I do it in all parts of my life. But you know what? It adds up when we keep doing it. And it adds stress to our lives. It adds stress to the people in, in our lives that love us. Uh, that oftentimes we're keeping waiting. But I, I want to just challenge you with this whole area of margin. Sometimes our schedules are so packed in and so tight that if God called us to do something, we're like, sorry, God, I don't have time. So I want you to think about this. Busyness is the enemy of depth. A lot of times we're not going deep with Jesus because we're going wide for him. We're just so busy doing stuff. And we're going here and we're going there and we're doing this and we're doing that. That we don't just, we don't simply have time to hear from God. And if that's where you find yourself, you may have left your first love. You may have left your first love. And finally, it's joy. Do you know that there is no greater honor in life than serving the Lord? And sometimes our service to the Lord just becomes just something like we punch the card and then we leave and we do whatever. And if you've lost your joy, I would just challenge you. Maybe you've left your first love. I was, uh, I'm a youth pastor, and uh, a couple of years ago, actually a bunch of years ago, this is my turning point, by the way, in ministry. It's changed everything. We were up at Camp of the Woods, where we take our yearly youth retreat. And uh, we, were, we, used to, we used to alternate years, but we used to go up during New Year's Eve. Kind of a weird time to do a retreat, all right? We go, we go like right between Christmas and New Year's, all right? To this day, I don't know why we do that. And I'm the youth pastor there for 13 years. But it, it's just like been passed down from youth pastor to youth pastor. It's been our tradition. And it, it works for us. But we used, to, we used to stay over New Year's. And the challenge with staying over New Year's was, you know, like when you're home, you watch the ball drop, you have a party. When you're in the middle of Speculator New York, with a bunch of teenagers, and there's like, you know, the town shuts down at 7 o'clock at night. It's like, what do you do 
to bring in the new year. So every year we'd have to have a meeting and we'd say, okay, well, let's, let's think of something cool to do this year. One year we took one of our leaders and we wrapped Christmas lights around him. And we, don't you remember that? And we hoisted him up to the ba- on the basketball net and we brought all the teenagers into the big gym with the lights out. And uh, Doug's father uh, started giving a speech or something or another, I don't know, about like New Year's and resolutions and you know, and the kids are just like, all right, you know, and then all of a sudden we're like, okay, 10 seconds away from the new year, you know, and we're in the gym and the lights are out and, and also, you know, 10, nine, eight, seven, you know, and I don't have to go through it all. And, uh, you know, happy, happy new year, you know, and then all of a sudden we see this, uh, gee, it was supposed to be a ball, but it was, it just, it, it was disturbing. It was just... It was like Christmas lights wrapped around a person, but they weren't wrapped in any kind of sequence. And I'll just never forget, like, they started hoisting him down, and the lights went on. And I think all the kids were just kind of looking at it like, what in the world is this? What kind of youth ministry are you guys running? You know? And, and, and so that was like our attempt. You know, one year we, we decided we were going to have a snowball fight with the kids. You know, like the sponsors were going to take on the kids. I don't know whose idea that was, but they have since been fired. And, um, you know, I mean, we, we were obliterated by the kids. I mean, it was just like, it wasn't even a match. And, uh, you know, and, and so we, we would try to come up with all these ideas. So one year we're like, okay, we're not going to do a snowball fight. We're not going to have some guy come down. I'm going to do a barbecue. I'm going to do what I like to do. I like to eat. So I got a big old barbecue. It wouldn't fit in any vehicle we had, so... We had the kids and they're having a good time having skit night and they're having fun and I'm out there. It's the end of the week. I'm a little tired, I confess. And I'm wheeling this big old barbecue down the hill, the icy hill. It's cold. And I'm thinking, you know what, God? These kids don't even appreciate a thing I do for them. You ever have like one of those pity parties? Am I the only one? I'm just being honest with you. And so I'm, I'm like, I'm like, God, this is. This is ridiculous, man. I'm do- they're in there having a good time, and I'm out here. I'm pushing this thing. They don't even care. They're not even going to say thank you. It's not even, and I'm just going off and off and off, like whatever. And this is my, I, I'll never forget, this is my personal turning point in ministry. It was as if God stopped me dead in my tracks, and he said, Seth, who are you doing this for? And I remember I, I, I put the barbecue down. I was wheeling it. And I, and I said, God, I'm, I've missed the point. Of course, I'm doing it for them. And yeah, they're human and they're not going to appreciate me. And they're not going to show me what I think I deserve. And, and Lord, somehow, some way, I've gotten things mixed up and I haven't done this for you. And I started to think, you know what, Jesus? Like, what if I did this for you? And then I, then I got silly. You know, it was like God just turned a switch on in my life. And I was like, you know what? It'd be kind of cool to be like, to cook a hamburger for Jesus, you know? And I was like, I was like, God, how would, if you were here tonight, like, how, how would you eat a hamburger? And, he, and I just heard this from heaven. Well done. Good in, no, I, I, that's not true. All right, I'm sorry. We were Baptists at the time. God doesn't speak to Baptists like that. All right. And uh, so, so that... But, that, but that, was, that was like my whole experience. You know what I mean? It was just like God just did this. And I went from complaining to worshiping. 
I really did. And the cool thing was that night was, uh, and the kids don't know this, but I, I, I got there. I was so excited to get the barbecue running because now, now I'm excited. Uh, I get the barbecue going, and, and I'm like, this is awesome. And I'm serving Jesus. I'm happy now. And I turn it on about 45 minutes before they get, I figured, let's get it nice and hot. But that, it never dawned on me that I'm in the middle of speculating in New York about 1130 at night. And that if I ran out of propane, I would have nowhere to go to get propane. And that just never clicked with me until I put the burgers on, which were frozen. And I realized they weren't cooking. And I said, oh, man. You know, I mean, this is, you know, but now, you know, I'm okay. Because I, I, I mean this. I'm in a place of worship right now. And, and I remember, you know, somehow they started to cook and we got through it and the kids were eating and everybody was having a great time. And, and then one of my leaders came and said, well, you stop cooking. The kids are done. They're full. They're happy. They're having a great time. And I was just like, no, are you sure? I got more food. You know, I was just in a great mood. And she's like, this is it. They're done. I was like, okay. And I was like, I'm going to turn this thing off. But I'm, if I turn it off, it ain't going back on because I think I have no more propane. And when I turned it off, I turned off all the, the flame and the, turned off the the propane. And wouldn't you know the fire kept burning? And I, I, I can't prove this to you, but I think I ran out of propane a long time ago. And God was just being faithful. He was just being God. And I really just thank him that that was my turning point in ministry. And I realized that I, to be effective in whatever God called me to do, I couldn't do it for the people. I had to do it as an act of worship to God first. Now I have to remind myself of that story often to keep myself in check. But, but have you lost your joy in serving the Lord? And if you have, that might be a sign that you have left your first love. So how do we, how do we get back? What's the cure to this? Well, fortunately, like I said, Jesus tells us the cure. And we're going to look at this. And uh, I believe it's on the screen. What's the cure? Well, the cure is right here. Consider how far you've fallen. Jesus said, repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And I, I don't believe this last part of the verse is a reference to losing your salvation. I, I do believe it's a reference to the Lord disciplining us. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God will discipline sons and daughters. It's out of his love for us. I, I don't believe this is a reference to losing your salvation. But I do believe it's a very clear word from the Lord that he will not tolerate this, that he calls it sin when we forsake our first love. But what are, what are the things you need to do and what's the cure? The first thing is to remember. The first thing is to remember. It is so easy to drift as Christians, isn't it? You know, you ever feel like, you know, you're just constantly fighting, swimming upstream. You're paddling upstream as a Christian. As soon as we stop rowing, the current is always leading away from God. And so I find that it is so easy for us to drift, and sometimes it's subtle. But Jesus tells us to stop, to remember. Remember. Uh, if you ever took the Truth Project, they said something really awesome. They said, we tend to remember the things that we ought to forget. And we forget the things that we should always remember. That's why in the Old Testament, they would make these memorial rocks. Because it was like they needed to be reminded not only for them, but of future generations of God's faithfulness. And every time you looked at that rock or that stone, you'd say, oh, son, let me tell you the story behind this. Why was that? Because so, we forget so quickly. So the first step is to, is to remember. Remember what it was like when you first became a Christian. 
Remember when it was like when you were just so in love with Jesus and that he was like the only thing that mattered? Remember. The second step is to repent. The second step is to repent. You know, it is a sin. The Bible tells us that sin is missing the mark. We're missing the mark when we love other things more than Jesus. Even when we love the blessings that he gives us more than him. You know, my son and my daughter, they're gifts from... Uh, I don't have a daughter. Um, <laughs> Doug has a daughter. All right? I was Doug for a minute. Um, but my, my kids are gifts from God. The scripture's clear on that. But you know, sometimes the gifts that I have that God has given me and my wife and my family can become idols. They can become idols. They can get in the way of my relationship with God. And things can easily get out of, out of whack in my life. And so a lot of times we talk about idolatry and things that, you know, sometimes it's the blessings that God gives us that are just, they're not in the right order. And Jesus tells us to repent because this is sin. That has to be our response. And the repentance deals with changing not only the way we think about it, but changing the way we act. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm sorry. Repentance is always followed by a change of action. It's change in the way we think, and it's change in our behavior. I don't know if you've heard of Joe Rosenberg, but he gave this great definition. He gave this great word picture of repentance. And um, I have, uh, as I shared, I have two sons, Seth Jr. and Jaden, and uh, they both like to run. They run around the house. That's all they do. And Seth, all he wants to do now is become a baseball player. And so he's always trying to show Daddy how fast he is. And so... Um, he always wants to run and run and run and show me, Dad, I'm so fast, I'm so fast, I'm so fast. And so I want you to think for a minute. Um, if my son, Seth, just ran as far as he could away from me. Now, I know that the further he keeps running from me, the further he keeps running, the more danger is going to be in his path. And that when he's not close to me, that there's nobody in this world who's going to love him the way I do as his father. And so Seth starts running, and he's running far from me. And I yell out, Seth, stop! Now, how many times have we come to a service? You hear the word of God being preached. You hear a podcast. You're having a quiet time. And you hear God saying, stop! God's clearly speaking to you. And you know he's speaking to you. But at that point, my son, he stops and he has a decision. Does he keep running or does he turn around and run back toward his father? Now, I know I'm his father. I have age. I have experience. I have wisdom that he doesn't have. I know that the further he runs from me, the worse off it's going to be for him. That there is certain danger that if he keeps running and he runs out those doors, 347's over there. He could get hurt. And so I yell stop because I love him and I want to protect him. He has a choice. And, and I believe that when we repent, it's not just changing our mind and saying, okay, well, I stopped. And I'm, well, yeah, that is kind of sinful, isn't it? But it's, it's a changing our behavior, and it's running back into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father. And that is the picture of repentance that I want to give you tonight. That if you hear God saying, stop, run back to Him and ask Him to help you to change the behavior in your life. And what does this changed behavior look like? Well, the last part of this verse tells us. 
to do the things that we did at first, to repeat. Have you ever been jealous of a new Christian? I love hanging out with new Christians. Because it reminds me of what it was like when I first gave my heart to Christ, when, when Jesus was the only thing that really mattered to me. Remember what that was like? Maybe some of you were there. I, I, I love watching new Christians. The things that were important to you. Like I remember like my dad. He would make us read our Bible. You say, that's, that's awful. No, it was great. I'm so thankful he made me read my Bible. Every day for a half hour. And there was no fooling dad. Because he'd quiz us on it. You know? So, and, and he'd read it himself. He'd say, okay, well, you're reading from Matthew. Okay. Well, what happened in this passage? And so you couldn't be like, all right, I fell asleep. Sorry. Um, you know, he knew. But sometimes I would rebel. I was supposed to read for a half hour, and I'd read for like 40 minutes. I, I had like this, no, I'm, I'm messing up. I did, though. You know why? Because it was like, I, I was like a new Christian. I couldn't get enough. And when I, was, when I was a little kid, I had all these learning disabilities. And I struggled in school. I was left back in kindergarten. I was, you know, I went to the rubber room. I was made fun of. All that stuff. It was, school was a struggle for me. But every time I opened up the Word of God, it was like I understood it. God made himself so real to me, and I couldn't get enough. You, you, ever, you know what that's like? And it was like, I want to go back to that. Sometimes we do just enough to say we did it. But when we first loved Jesus and we would just read the Bible just because we loved him, not because it was our spiritual duty or we had to do it or somebody told us to do it, it was just like, I just want to know Jesus more. And the Bible says that, that not only are we to remember, not only are we to, to repent, but let's repeat what we did at first. Reclaim our first love. It was the great Coach Lombardi. Today's Sunday. It's football day. And uh, the great Coach Lombardi, when he took over the Green Bay Packers, they were an absolute mess. They weren't winning. They didn't think like winners. They played like losers. And Coach Lombardi never tolerated that. And so what he would do is he got in and he realized his team was really awful. And he said, not only are they awful in the way they play, they don't even think the game right. So he got his, his team together, and he realized he had to change their mindset. And he started with the basics. And he stood before them, and he said, Men, this is a football. And then he would show them the football field, and he said, This is the football field. And he went right back to the basics, because he had to change their mindset and call them back to the very foundation of what football is. And sometimes that's what we need to do in our relationship with Jesus. Well, you may be thinking, as I did, as we wind up here tonight, you may be thinking, I feel so hopeless. How do I love Jesus most? I, I didn't come here tonight to condemn you or to help you walk in, in guilt and just feel like, oh, man. I wanted to encourage you. And I have come in my own life. I have come to the conclusion. Perhaps you're there that I cannot live the Christian life at all in my own strength. I've tried it and I fail every single time. I can't overcome the obstacles that are in my life in my own strength. There's so much that I realize I used to think I could do it, but I fall miserably short. Perhaps you could relate to that. And I am so grateful. 
I'm so grateful that tonight that my standing before God is not based on my behavior. It's based on what Jesus has done for me. It's not based on my righteousness, but his. And that my life is hidden in him. And I'm so grateful for the gospel. But I realized that a long time ago that I not only needed the gospel when I was 13 years old or 11 years old when I gave my heart and life to Jesus, that I need the gospel each and every day. I need it daily. I need Jesus every day to come to my rescue. It's Christ in us in Colossians. The, the writer of Colossians, Paul, he says, is the hope of glory. And why do we need this? You know, you know why? Because the world today is confused about what we're about. The world today is confused about what we're about as Christians. My son and I, we were, we were my wife and I, was last my son's story. We were, uh, we were at Northport Village one day. We were having lunch. We were sitting in the truck overlooking the water. It was a beautiful day. We were eating our lunch. And this kid walks by. He's got an L.A. Dodger hat and a Yankee backpack. My son, who's totally into baseball right now, he's like, Dad, Dad. I said, yeah. He goes, look at that. I said, what? He goes, look at that boy. He's got a, he's got a Dodger hat and a Yankee backpack. Then I heard him in the back seat. He went, hmm, that's confusing. <laughs> and I believe that's how a lot of Christians appear to the world. We have a, a Jesus backpack and a sticker or... We have a Jesus tattoo because we really love him, you know. And but yet sometimes our lives don't match up with that. And I think the world looks at Christians today and says, "Man, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I'm confused." This is not about how high you hold your hands up, worship. I'm not calling you to emotionalism or fanaticism. I'm not calling you to put more bumper stickers on your car, telling the world that you love Jesus. Or, or Sarah Palin stickers, because I know if you love Jesus, you have to have a Sarah Palin sticker. Uh, you know, I, I'm not telling you to leave here and say, I got to do more to prove I love him. I'm just asking you tonight as we close with worship to get to a place before God where you ask him to set your heart on fire for him tonight. To reveal, him, reveal more of who he is to you. You know, when you're in love, your only focus is to think about how you can please the one you're in love with. Ask God to bring you back to that place tonight. In closing, I say this. Three million people who like or love Jesus won't change the world. But a bunch of Christians, a bunch of Christians who love Jesus most, from Living Word, from Smithtown Gospel, from Island Christian Church, and all the many other churches in this area that are preaching the gospel. Those people who are totally in love with Jesus just might change the world. I pray that God will be glorified in your life. And in mine as we go to worship tonight. That you would begin to allow God to speak to you. About where you stand. And what your next step is. And would you run back tonight. To the arms of your heavenly father. God bless you guys. Thank you.